6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 28 through 30. Even today, there's a very prominent quarterly about Jerusalem called Adriel. Ariel is a, another name for the city of Jerusalem. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will encamp against thee round about, and lay siege against thee with the mound, and I will raise forts against thee. This has echoes of Zechariah chapter 14. You can look that on your own. We'll keep moving to make some progress here. But the same idiom is in view. Verse 4. And thou shalt be brought down, and thou shalt speak out of the ground. Thy speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be like a medium or like a channel. Huh? As uh, Joanna Michelson always asks me, can you truly find a happy medium? Huh? <laughs> anyway, sorry about that. Yeah. Like a medium out of, the, out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper, or I might say chirp, out of the dust. Remember, we ran into that in chapter 8. That term's only used in Isaiah. Speaks of the mediums that chirp and mutter, remember? Okay. Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones shall be like chaff which passes away. Yea, it shall be in an instant, suddenly. Thou shalt be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder, and with earthquake, and great noise, with storm and tempest, and the flame of devouring fire. Glib words, but terrifying in their impact. Verse 7, And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her and her stronghold and that distress her, shall be like the dream of a night vision. And it shall be as when a hungry man dreameth, and behold, he eateth, and he waketh, and his soul is empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, but he waketh, and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite. So shall the multitude of the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. One of the strangest things to contemplate is that all the nations are going to come up against Jerusalem. Zechariah talks about it in chapter 12 and chapter 14. Psalm 2, the dialogue between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and that makes up Psalm 2, mentions this. One of the strange things about the whole Armageddon business, whether it's in the Old Testament prophecies or New Testament prophecies, is the whole idea... That the world, the Gentile nations, are going to knowingly take up arms against the God of the universe. I find that hard to imagine. And yet that's what the Word of God says. I mean, nations in all their arrogance, I find it amazing that they'll get that arrogant as to actually take up arms against God. <laughs> and yet, that's clear. That's what's going to happen. Verse 9, stay yourselves in wonder, cry out and cry. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and hath closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. And the vision of all has become unto you like the words of a book that is sealed. 
which men deliver to one who is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him who is not learned, and saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. <laughs> kind of interesting. We read the Old Testament prophets like Daniel, it's sealed until the time of the end. And one of the interesting things about today is prophecies that have not been understood for 19 centuries or more are suddenly becoming very clear. Study Daniel 2 and 7 and 9. And they're common knowledge today among, among the biblically literate. I realize it's a small minority, but biblically literate. And yet you can go back a few decades and most ministers wouldn't even know what the 70 week prophecy Daniel was all about. And today it's pretty commonly, you may have different views, but you commonly, commonly discussed. Well, that's the Old Testament. Now I get to the book of Revelation. What makes it distinctive is that it's not sealed. In fact, it's the only book of the Bible that has a command to read it. Bible often says study the Bible, sure, generically, totally, collectively. Only one book has the audacity to say, read me, I'm special, and you get a special blessing. Book of Revelation. It's not sealed, is it? And yet, in Amos, the prophet tells us that there's going to be a famine not of bread, but of the Word of God. I never could visualize that until recent years. You know, as I grew up, uh, you know, some people knew about the Bible, some didn't, but even people who didn't believe the Bible at least knew something about it. They at least had some awareness because it was just a cultural tradition, if nothing else. What's amazing to me today as I travel, in fact, probably my main burden in my ministry, is the biblical illiteracy, even within the body. Now, the good news is a real hunger. The good news is everywhere I go, people gather by the thousands with a hunger to get from the milk into the meat. And I think that's exciting. And yet, I also, as I go, am appalled at how many things I used to take for granted that people don't know. The good news is in well-taught fellowships, there's a hunger and there's an openness, and that makes it exciting. But you can also tell in our culture, looking more broadly, how it's all starting, how the world is closing itself off from biblical things. And it's not hard to imagine a time when people will want to know and can't. And I'm not speaking about the, the dearth in some of the third world countries or the, the, the conditions in the Soviet Union for the last 50 years that hopefully are starting to, you know, there, there's some openness there. It's quite exciting. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, in the world at large, among civilized nations. It's not a question of disbelieving. It's a question of not having any interest or background or knowledge as to what, what it even says, let alone whether they buy it or not. It's interesting how the book will become, once more, a book that's sealed. If for another reason, the hinderer, that is, the Holy Spirit, will be taken out of the way. See, the church that maybe we're talking about here is the churches who do not need new pastors after the rapture. Verse 13, the wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men, Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Those that hath more will be given, and those that hath not, such as they have, will be taken away. Strange phrase that Jesus used, but sort of fixed here, doesn't it? Verse 15, Woe to those, unto those who seek deeply to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. And they say, Who seeth us, and who knoweth us? <laughs> it's amazing how we all, yes, you and I, find ourselves rather stupidly presuming there's some things God doesn't know. 
You know, every once in a while we engage in something on the theory that, well, maybe he doesn't notice. When we realize that, we laugh at ourselves because, of course, that's foolish. But isn't that interesting? See, if we were really conscious of God watching us, there's an awful lot of things we really wouldn't be caught doing, wouldn't it? I love the way Chuck put it, you know, uh, referring, I think, to his grandson. How much does God love you? He loves you so much he can't take his eyes off you. Oh, really? <laughs> interesting. God loves you that much. No matter where you are or what you're doing, he's watching. He knows. You can't hide it from him. Intellectually, that's obvious. And yet, practically speaking, we close our eyes to that sometimes. Who seeth us? Who knoweth us? Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him who made it, who made me not? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he had no understanding? Now, of course, this has several dimensions, not the least of which it's quoted by Paul in Romans 9. That's why it's so familiar to you. It has to do with the sovereignty of God. God is the potter. We are the clay. He can make of us what he likes. And uh, this it just gets, gets, hits head on, this strange mystery, this paradox of the sovereignty of God. The thing that captures it for me for some reason is this little kindergarten riddle, which I'm sure you've all heard. The kids say, the little kids say, you know, where does the gorilla sleep in the forest? And the answer, of course, is wherever he wants to. And that says it all. God is God. He says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, he said to Moses. Hmm? Paul quotes that in, in Romans 9. And, of course, the most fearful thing is not the sovereignty of God. It's the sovereignty of man. See, the frightening thing is that he's handed you sovereignty over yourself. And if you're smart, you know what you do with it? Yes, you hand it right back. You betcha. And you know, when we're in trouble, when we're in deep trouble, boy, do we hand it over to him. Of course, the minute we start getting out, say, hey, it's okay now, I can take over again, Lord. Which is the invitation to get right back into trouble, of course. Something else about this, though, it says, Shall the work say of him who made it, he made me not? It fascinates me, because the characteristic of our age is the denial of design. Modern man has invented the most insulting idol yet. You can talk about Moloch, you can talk about Baal, you can talk about these strange things that the primitive cultures worshipped. You may not agree with them, but you can understand it, perhaps, because of their fear of natural elements and whatever. Fine. Modern man has found a more insulting God. Nothingness. Randomness. We're all here by chance. You've got to be kidding. Not only does that fly in the face of all the scientific evidence, not only does it fly in the face of reason, it's exactly what Isaiah is talking about here. Shall the work say of him who made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he had no understanding? You know, we look at the DNA, we look at the brain cells, we look at the incredible architecture of the human being, an architecture we can't even begin to fully understand with all our science and all our efforts. And at the same time, we ascribe it to nothingness. It all happened accidentally. We don't understand how it all interacts, but it all happened. And, of course, it denies also every major physical law that we've proven to ourselves, called entropy and what have you. Anyway, enough of that. Moving on. Foolishness of men, huh? 
foolishness of God is wiser than men, right? I realize I'm buying. Let's go to 1 Corinthians anyway. I love this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's an incredible chapter. Verse 26. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And I think it was the Queen of England that said, I was saved by an M. Because it doesn't say not any noble. It says not many. Not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. Hath God chosen, yea, the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. Why? Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. I love verse 25. I missed verse 25, popping back. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Boy, doesn't that sound like a strange phrase, the foolishness of God? How can we even articulate those two words together? The foolishness of God. One of the interesting things we can't help but notice from Genesis to Revelation, how God goes out of his way to execute his plan in terms that we think are strange. God decides to wipe out the whole world but save eight people. Has them build a boat. A barge, I should say. Huh? You go all the way through. Samson in the jawbone of an ass. You can't help but see God almost being facetious, almost with, with a smile on his face, going out of his way to do things that to us seem foolish because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And we could go through, we could take the time to go through just example after example after example. The head of the Syrian army comes to Elijah to be healed of leprosy. He wants him to go wash that muddy river seven times. And he was so incensed he wasn't going to do it until his servant says, Hey, you know, if he told you to conquer a country, would you do it? Sure. All he has to do is go in this body. So he does it, and of course he comes out whole. But I mean, as you watch example after example all through the Bible, God goes out of his way to do things in what you and I would call weird. And what's the most strange thing that God, of all the strange things he does, what is the strangest that the entire universe would be redeemed by a carpenter's son hanging on a cross on a hill in Judea? That all time prior and all time forward from that would be measured by that event? That all mankind that would look to that and accept it as a payment would be given an eternity that goes beyond our comprehension? And those that don't will remain in the predicament of being alienated from God? That's foolish, isn't it? It's exactly what Paul says it is. Verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. So if that seems foolish to you, be careful. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. Interesting, interesting person with whom we have to do.
the God of the universe. What a personality. It's interesting as you go through scripture, you learn more and more about him. Some of it baffles us, some of it amazes us, some of it amuses us. But in all cases, it should bring us to our knees. Back to Isaiah. We really will make a little more progress in Isaiah before he's over. I think we're what? Verse 17. It is not yet a very little while, and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest. And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. This, of course, is Isaiah's way of relieving the pressure because he turns their attention from the judgments and things to the kingdom blessings, that incredible glory that is yet ahead. Verse 20, For the terrible one is brought to nothing, and the scoffer is consumed, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off. Who make a man for offender for a word, and lay a snare for him who reproveth in the gate, and turn aside the just for nothing? Therefore, thus saith the Lord, who redeemed Abraham, concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now grow pale. But when he seeth his children and the work of mine hands, in the midst of him they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. Now in chapter 30 we shift gears again. Isaiah is now going to focus again more locally. He's going to focus on this nonsense of making an alliance with Egypt in the response to the fears of Assyria. Isaiah's message to Hezekiah is, don't look to Egypt as an ally against Assyria. Look to the God of hosts. The God of Israel is going to take care of the Assyrians. And Hezekiah has his knees a little wobbly here. Chapter 30, verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, who take counsel but not of me. And who cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. For his princes were at Zon and his ambassadors have come to Hanus. Hannes, by the way, is Thomas, the place that was featured in Raiders and Lost Ark, by the way, but that's neither here nor there. They were all ashamed of a people who could not profit them or be in a help or a prophet, but a shame and also a reproach. Now, as we read this, of course, Isaiah is talking to Hezekiah and his following about the futility of looking to Egypt as an alliance against the Assyrians. No problem. And we read that with a great comfortable distraction. Because that's Hezekiah, and that was back then, and he had his problems. Let's pause for a second and realize that the Holy Spirit put this here for you and I tonight. Don't we do the same thing? Right now, some of this audience have certain fears. They may be professional, they may be financial, they may be any of a number of different complexions. To whom are we turning to protect ourselves? or defend ourselves against those attacks. Let's read it again and imagine ourselves and recognize the idiom of Egypt is identified elsewhere in the Scripture idiomatically of the world, right? We're delivered out of the world, aren't we? We're pilgrims. We're not earth dwellers. Woe to the rebellious children, whoops, that may be us, who take counsel but not of me, and who cover with a covering but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down into Egypt. 
have not asked at my mouth and to strengthen themselves with the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Scary. Because we all run the risk of doing this, looking to the world to solve our problems and not the Lord. There's a balance issue here too. But the point is, if there's a major fear, a major challenge, make sure that your refuge is in the God of the universe and not the world. That was the error they made and the error that we might be cautioned about. You see, they're in effect here turning to their former enemy for as an alliance. It wasn't that long ago that Moses brought them out of Egypt. Now they're looking to Egypt to support them against the Assyrians. Verse 6, the burden of the beasts of the Negev into the land of trouble and anguish. From where come the young and the old lion, the viper, and the fiery flying serpent? They will carry their riches upon the shoulders of young asses and their treasures upon the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit them. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore have I cried concerning this. Their strength is to sit still. Now go, write it before them on a tablet, and note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. That this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord. You know, I think, that in Deuteronomy, what you did with rebellious children, you stoned them. I've often been tempted to try and force that uh, in more recent years, but uh, it's probably not appropriate. But it's interesting. It clearly, though, applies idiomatically, at least, to the thing we're talking about here. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore have I cried concerning this. Their strength is to sit still. Now, by the way, some texts here say, speak of Rahab, that I've called her Rahab, who sits still. And some of your texts may have that. Rahab, believe it or not, happens to be a root from which is an old name for Egypt. Don't confuse it with Rahab of Jericho, the capital of the Amorites. That's just a coincidence in a sense. The word Rahab, the Hebrew root, is also turns out to be an ancient name for Egypt. But some of your texts may or may not have the word Rahab there. The word actually is a root that alludes to pride and arrogance. Okay, And it was an old name for Egypt, for whatever that's worth. Verse 8, now go write it before them on a tablet, wrote in a book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. This is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, see not. And to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Now obviously he's being sarcastic, or however you want to say it. That's not literally what they're saying, but that's in effect what they're saying. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. I think J. Vernon McGee used to say that he can fill his churches when he teaches Revelation, and he empties them when he teaches Romans. We love to hear things that are exciting and up, right? You announce the right topic, and this place is full, right? But we can announce a topic of the consequences of sin or something of that nature, and it'd be amazing how many conflicts develop on Wednesday night. We all do this. Prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. Of course, the very fact that you're here proves that you're exceptions, I understand. I'm not kidding, I mean that sincerely. I said it facetiously, but I meant it sincerely. Verse 11. Get out of the way, turn aside out of the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. This again is Isaiah continuing in a sarcastic vein. Wherefore, thus saith the Holy One of Israel, because ye despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them... Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you as a breach ready to fall. 
swelling out in a high wall whose breaking cometh suddenly in an instant. He's alluding to something visually you and I never see. If you were in that day and you depended militarily on the integrity of your walls around the city, see a breach of the wall from a battering or something would start to create a bulge and eventually break through. Do you follow me? And unless you've seen it in movies, you, know, you and I, don't, we, we don't normally encounter that in our regular life. They would be very sensitive to that. So he's saying, when he says, the iniquity shall be to you as a breach ready to fall, that's an, a graphic idiom that would be familiar to them because there's the wall they're counting on. They see it start to buckle, bulge, if you will, you see. So swelling out in a high wall whose breaking cometh suddenly in an instant. See, he's speaking graphically of something that's common to them but foreign to us. Verse 14, and he shall break it as the breaking of the potter's vessel that is broken in pieces. That's an idiom very familiar, biblical idiom, isn't it? From Romans 9 and Psalm 2, we have, he shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Okay? He shall not spare, so that there shall not be found in the bursting of it a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water out of the pit. In other words, the pieces that are left are too small to be usable. Like a potter's vessel is broken. It's not only broken, but the pieces are too small to have any secondary purpose. That's another way of what I believe is the sense of the passage. So Isaiah continues, verse 15, For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest shall ye be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. And ye would not. John and I were just talking today about the most difficult task that the Lord puts before us. The most difficult task. If the Lord asked you to leave this building knowing that when you left the steps that you'd be shot by some enemies, you would do it right now, wouldn't you? The Lord doesn't ask you to do that. He asks you to wait. <sighs> you know, let's get on with it. Let's do whatever it is. Lord, give me some heroic thing to do. Let me die for you. No, no, no. You're going to have to live for me. Oh, do I really? I mean, that's tougher. Interesting. Waiting on the Lord. We're going to talk about this a little more as it goes here. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K House TV app to access an ever growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.